Welcome to the Rusty George Podcast, where each month we'll be tackling issues from the Bible to culture, community, and of course, sports. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Welcome back to the Rusty George Podcast, everybody. And I am joined by Rusty, uh, head pastor at Real Life Church, and special guest, Lee Strobel and his wife, Leslie. So, welcome, guys. Thanks. Good to be here. Good to be here. And uh, new movie coming out. Yeah. So, is there anything you want to tell us about that? Oh, yeah. It comes out April 7th, which uh, is when this podcast is releasing. And awesome. uh, it's a motion picture about my story of uh, and Leslie's story. Um, of my, me going from atheism to Christianity, uh, trying to get Leslie out of the Christian cult that she was involved <laughs> in after she became a Christian. Uh, it's about our marriage. It's about father-son relationship. It's about a big city newspaper. It's about a detective story. It's about a uh, spiritual journey. And uh, we got great cast. Faye Dunaway, Academy Award winning, uh, legend in Hollywood. Um, we have a Tony Award winner. Uh, Academy Award nominee, so it's a great cast, great script, uh, and as pastors who watch the film have said, it's there's no cheesiness, there's yeah. no cringe factor. This is a film that we're really encouraging Christians to invite their non-believing friends to. Um, it's just a great story, yeah. and, the, the, and I could say that because I didn't write it. You know, I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I had nothing to do with the movie yeah, other yeah. than contributing to the initial brainstorming, but mm-hmm. um, they've just done a terrific job of creating a compelling motion picture. Good. Let me ask you about that because, it, I mean, to have your life made into a movie, that's got to be a little surreal. Yeah. How did you yeah. both feel about that when that was presented to you? For me, it was really difficult just because we're talking 1980 when this was right. all happening. And, you know, you've moved on from that era. <laughs> and so now you're looking back not only at the awful clothing but <laughs> and, and hairdos, hair uh-huh. but how you were back then. Mm. And we're not really proud of a lot of what is portrayed. It's all real. It's honest. And we weren't believers. But, right. um, you know, it's, it's not something that we're proud of. And yet um, we're just finding that I think God's redeeming it mm-hmm. and hopefully people will be able to relate to it. Right. Oh my goodness. Yeah, well, every time the great. actor would say Leslie, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd say, wait a minute, that's my Leslie. You know? <laughs> right. or, or she would say Lee. It's like, whoa, what did I do? Yeah. You know? That's funny. <laughs> that's right. But they, you know, they did such a tremendous job. Um, I'm played by Mike Vogel from The Help and Under the Dome and Poseidon. Leslie's played by Erica Christensen from Parenthood. And they, you know, we met, talked beforehand. They asked a lot of questions about our lives. They, um, uh, we actually recorded, audio recorded all of our lines attributed to me and Leslie for the whole film so that they could catch our voices and our accents and our intonations, little things like, do you call her Leslie or Leslie? You know, they wanted to get everything, oh, yeah. you know, and what pet names did you use for each other, right. things like that. Uh, and Brian Bird wrote the script. We spent about a week with him just delving into our lives. And, and uh, as Leslie said, it's an honest story. Um, it, it, it doesn't uh, blink from showing, um, you know, things we're not particularly proud of. Because right. I was a, you know, a drunken, uh, uh, hedonistic, narcissistic, self-absorbed, self-destructive, but successful a journalist at the and Chicago lovable. Tribune. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And that's one thing I like about the way Mike Vogel yes. portrays me. Even yes. though, you know, I showed this film to a bunch of pastors, and at the end I got up and said, boy, that guy was a jerk. Wasn't he? Uh, but, you know, he's a lovable jerk in this film. Yes. So, he, he, he got it right. He walks yeah. the, the line very well. That's good. <laughs> Lee, tell us a little bit about why you were an atheist. Well, 
The easy answer is that I thought the mere concept of an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe was absurd. Mm -hmm. And it just, I just thought on the surface of it, it made no sense. And so uh, that was my initial knee-jerk reaction. And then as I read books by Bertrand Russell and Anthony Flew and other famous atheists, uh, it cemented me into my disbelief. That's the easy answer. The deeper answer, and the film gets into this, is um, I had a very difficult relationship with my father. Hmm. When you study all the uh, famous atheists of history, Camus, Sartre, uh, Nietzsche, uh, Freud, uh, Voltaire, Wells, Feuerbach, O'Hare, every one of them either had a a, a very difficult relationship with their father or the father died when they were young or abandoned their family when they were young. Hmm. And as Freud said, the implication is if your earthly father has disappointed you or hurt you in some way, you don't want to know about a heavenly father. You mm. avoid him because he's only going to be worse. I mean, how much more is he going to hurt you or he's going to disappoint you? Mm. So, you know, we show in the movie that we I had a difficult relationship with my dad. And that that is also redeemed at the end, which is in true life. I don't want to spoil that scene. But um, um, my dad and I had a big blowout on the eve of my high school graduation. And uh, he caught me doing something he told me not to do. And we had a big argument, and he looked at me and said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. Mm. And um, I turned around and walked out and uh, got an apartment. I was never going to go home again. That was it. Um, my mother intervened later, a few months later, and um, we had kind of a cool detente, you know, uh, the, never really reconciled, never talked about it. And, uh, and then he died uh, before we ever really had a moment to, um, you know, have him say he was sorry and have me say I was sorry. So um, so I wonder the degree to which I was an atheist may be attributed to you know some of these underlying issues mm-hmm. that a lot of people have. Um, I sat down with a famous atheist once. I said, tell me your, about your story. He said, well, my dad died when I was nine. Yep. It's like, no, okay. It's not universally true, but it can be a factor. Mm-hmm. So I think there were a lot of reasons. And I think there were moral reasons. You know, I liked being drunk. That was, I enjoyed, I was the life of the bar, you know. I would buy pitchers of beer and go around and fill everybody's mug and, um, you know, it was the life of the party. Mm. Um, I wasn't an alcoholic in the sense I was dependent on alcohol. Um, when I became a Christian, I, I quit drinking immediately. But I was happy in my sin. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to give that up. I didn't want to be told what to do. And I think pride has a part of it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and C.S. Lewis writes about that. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm too smart for that. I, I, you know, and, and you have a puffed-up sense of your own intellect that um, um, convinces you that uh, you don't need this and that you're better than this and, and so right. forth. So I think there, I think, and I think for most skeptics, there's more than just the intellectual issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there's often something else. Ravi Zechariah says there's always a moral issue. Right. And of course, we all have a moral issue. We know that right. from Romans. But um, uh, but I think sometimes when we scratch beneath the surface, we find more than just the questions at, at uh, driving it. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's... I can definitely see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember uh, just some of the atheists that I've known and that, that plays true to their story. Yeah. Uh, Leslie, tell us about 
why you decided to go to church, <laughs> which was the lead domino in this whole story. Right, right. We had just moved to a new uh, condominium, and a neighbor came up with a plate of cookies and her little girl on her hip, and we became good friends, and she was a believer. Huh. And so we started having tea down in her apartment, and there was Bible study material and Bible sitting around, which was foreign to me. We didn't uh -huh. even own a Bible. And, uh, you know, she'd ask me certain questions about where we were going to take the kids for church and that sort of thing. And I let her know that we were going to allow them to make that decision themselves when they were older. Right. And she kind of filled me in on some of the problems with that thinking. So over time, uh, she just answered a lot of questions for me and then invited me to church. And I finally went. And uh, that's where things got difficult. Right. I accepted Christ and um, decided I better tell Lee about it. Right. Didn't go over well. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, that scene in the movies kind of almost word for word yeah. what happened, and it's yeah. a difficult scene when she tells me uh, uh -huh. she'd been to church and um, prayed and, and uh, invited Jesus to lead her life. And I, the first word that went through my mind was divorce. Uh -huh. mm. I, I I was going to walk out. Um, I thought she was going to turn into some holy roller or something, you know, and. Uh, spend all their time on Skid Row serving the poor or something. It, it wasn't what I signed up for. It wasn't part of the deal. Mm -hmm. And she was going to be sucked into this evangelical subculture where I wasn't welcome as an atheist. And she was cheating on me with this guy, Jesus, who <laughs> all of a sudden was giving her emotional support, which I thought I was the one who was <laughs> supposed to be giving emotional support. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I launched my investigation into Christianity partially because of the positive changes in Leslie, but partially also, and maybe dominantly, to try to disprove it so I could yeah. get around this cult that she was involved in. Right. Yeah, and it, it seems as though it was your wife's unrelenting yeah. love that kind of led you to that. Yeah. And But there were some more compelling, I guess, reasons that made it a little easier to swallow, it seems like. Yeah. And those kind of focus on your investigations that you right. did involving Christ and the resurrection and the right. nature of that. And so... Uh, then you, you, you write the case for Christ, and then you're coming back to some of that work that you did on Jesus and the resurrection right. recently, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, the film has really resurrected a right. lot of that, so to speak. And I just came <laughs> out with, you know, I wrote the case for Christ in 1998, and I just came out with the first updated and expanded uh, edition of the book. So okay. we've added a new chapter. I've updated uh, all the references. I've... Um, uh, I, I added some new archaeological discoveries, some new manuscript discoveries. So I really refreshed the book and to make it uh, continue to be current. Um, and um, so that that's, was on my mind when I got this call out of the blue from two motion picture studios the yeah. same week saying, yeah. hey, we'd like to make your book into a movie. And I chose Pure Flix because I had been in their movie Guys Not Dead 2. I've had a small part playing myself. And um, so I trusted them. And I said, as long I put in the contract, as Ryan Bird must write the film because hmm. he's a great screenwriter and he's also a good friend. And I knew he would treat our story honestly. Yeah. Well, I know that the film's going to cover a lot of this. We don't want to yeah. give all the, all the details away. You're going to talk this weekend, um, but we've had some uh, people from the church uh, send in some questions. Yeah. So yes. uh, we'll get to some of those while time allows. Great. Go ahead, yeah, Josh. Sure. Um, and, and I want to avoid just answering the ones that were answered in service because you know the the softball question you know was the resurrection real and things yeah. like that so yeah. there's a little, a little more specific ones and mm -hmm. so um this one caught my eye did jesus really rise from the dead or was it just a metaphor of how we should live life and what's the mm -hmm. significance of a yeah. bodily 
Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, no, he didn't just metaphysically rise or rise as spirit. He physically rose from the dead. Um, now, um, why is that? Because that's what happened. You know, mm-hmm. I think in the one sense, it's what God required because that's what He accomplished. Mm-hmm. So therefore, there must be some implications as to why that's important. And um, uh, so, you know, the evidence of Him um, having returned from the dead. I think is uh, physically is uh, is powerful and persuasive. We have um, not only the empty tomb, which even the opponents of Jesus implicitly conceded was empty, but we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Now, when you consider that most of what we know from ancient history, we know from one or two sources, uh, nine sources is an impressive um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, amount mm-hmm. and the freshness of the evidence. You know, I thought, like a lot of skeptics, that this was a, a legend, mm-hmm. and uh, it took a legend a time to develop in the ancient world. Uh, and yet, we have a report of the resurrection that says that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the on the third day, and it mentions the specific names of groups and individuals to whom he appeared, including skeptics. And that's been dated back by scholars to within months Mm -hmm. of the death of Jesus. Now, when you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch, written 400 years Mm -hmm. after his Mm -hmm. life, and they're generally considered reliable, here we have something that's like a newsflash from ancient history. I mean, that's historical gold. Historians drool over stuff like that. In fact... That it's an ancient creed of the church, and we find it in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. But we can date it back earlier, as I said. Uh, and even one of the few Jewish New Testament scholars, Benches Lapid, mm-hmm. says the credentials of that report are so uh, powerful that it can be taken as a statement of eyewitnesses. Yeah. And you mentioned the nine sources, and there's some other sources, too, that, you know, Josephus or Pliny that mentioned the movement of Christianity right. uh, in general as well. Now, all those sources, like, they have a they have a source of their own. Mm-hmm. And so with the resurrection account, is there any other accounts maybe in... Um, somebody asked the question: Was there were, were there stories borrowed from any other religion or mythology at the time that oh, the disciples were lying? Yeah, you know, this is one of the. This is so interesting. In the 1900s, uh, the 19th century, the 1800s, German theologians came and historians came up with this theory that Christianity plagiarized its essential beliefs, including the resurrection, from other uh, ancient myths and uh, mystery religions. Like um, uh, there's one called. Um, uh, Mithraism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mithras was this supposed god who supposedly was born of a virgin, had 12 disciples, um, uh, was a great teacher, um, and he uh, died and was resurrected on the third day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they said, see, Christianity stole all that. Well, in the early 1900s, um, Christians completely debunked this stuff. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And, but then, in the later 1900s, almost toward the 20th century, uh, these skeptics went on the internet and found all this old stuff and, and went back to it, you know, either not realizing it's been all debunked or not caring. And, um, you know, it's just ridiculous. You look at Mithras. Um, Mithras was not born of a virgin. He emerged fully grown from a rock, yeah. um, you know, uh, and naked, by the way, except for a hat. <laughs> he... Um, uh, he wasn't a great teacher. He, he was famous for killing a bull. 
Yeah. Uh, he didn't have 12 disciples. The Iranian version, I think it was, had one, and the Roman version had two. Uh, and there's no record or, or report of him ever dying, um, so there's no resurrection. Mm-hmm. So this all collapses when you study the actual mystery religions and compare them to Christianity. There's a book called The Riddle of the Resurrection, written by a senior Swedish scholar that really sets the record straight. And, and in this treatise, he says that, um, uh, that, that Christianity retains its uniqueness uh, with the resurrection. In other words, there is no mm. other, and, and he makes a point there were no other mystery religions that had a resurrection prior to Christianity. Now, in that treatise he says, but I'm going to, uh, he says, even though that's the prevailing opinion, I'm going to take a contrary opinion. I'm going to look at five of them and see. And he goes through those five and shows that none of them have any yeah. parallels. Yeah. So this is uh, this is just one of those internet Oh, you know what it is? It's fake news. There you go. I'll use a contemporary <laughs> term. It's, yeah, yeah, it's fake news. <laughs> That's good. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, along with fake news, um, <laughs> somebody raised this question, and, and this is good. Gospels such as the Gospel of Judas yeah. and other things like that, and you've, you've written about these, mm-hmm. and I actually loved case for the real Jesus. Oh, thank you. It's been renamed, um, yeah, been renamed In Defense of Jesus. The book. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was so good Thank you. at understanding Jesus for who he really was yeah. and as a man. Also, the whole concept of inerrancy yes. was dealt with in there, which was great. Um, but talk a little bit about the other sources that didn't make it in. Yeah, you know, we have about, I think, is a number 80. I mean, there's a bunch of old gospels that have been recovered in recent years uh, from the um, Middle East. And um, the problem with them is that none of them have the credentials of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm. Probably the closest is Thomas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thomas is a collection of 114 sayings about Jesus. There's no narrative, so there's no resurrection in it because there's no narrative. It's just sayings supposedly from Jesus. Um, But the latest scholarship shows that Thomas was written about between 175 and 200 A.D. Now, Jesus lived uh, in the first century, died in 30 or 33 A.D., so this comes more than a century later. Right. And therefore, it, it, even though it, it, it has some echoes in it of the authentic Gospels, it also is completely tainted by Gnosticism, mm-hmm. which was a belief about salvation through knowledge. And, um, and you see Gnosticism influence in that document. Uh, you also see some sayings by Jesus which are totally alien to what we know about Jesus from more reliable sources. For instance, there's a passage where Jesus says to Mary, um, you know, you have to be made a male in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Mm. Well, that's, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Jesus was inclusive yeah. in his yeah. treatment of women. Um, so there's things in there that we know from better, re- more reliable sources um, um, we know better from those sources what Jesus said right. versus a later thing, a taint, later gospel tainted by Gnosticism. Uh, so you know, you look at the credentials of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that they're closer to the um, to the um, to the scene, that they're um, in streams that go back to the original people. There's proximity. There's um, verification with archaeology and other ancient writings. They, they just withstand the test of scrutiny mm-hmm. versus these other ones. And and the, some of the other ones get crazier. It's like, I think the Gospel of Peter, yeah, um, yeah this this giant cross, yeah. talking cross, emerges from the tomb. Well, 
I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I think there's actually one of the cross itself as well as the, yeah, the cross wrote the gospel. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So, and, and what they did back then is they would take names of credible people, like the Gospel of, of um, uh, Philip, mm-hmm. uh, the Gospel of uh, Mary, um, and, and Thomas, and so forth, and attribute those to them right. to try to gain credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was—they're not really rooted right. in those. Um, uh, go back. They don't go back to those actual people. Okay, let me ask this question for all of our listeners who have a friend that's not a follower of Jesus. Yeah. And they come, and suddenly they get all this apologetic information. Yeah. Do they? What's the best way to use apologetics to help an unbeliever without just overwhelming them? I think we have to be careful that we don't line up people against a wall like right. the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago and machine gun them with facts. Right. Um, that's just not an effective way of sharing Jesus with people. Right. I think we ought to do more listening than talking. I think we ought to ask more questions than give answers. I think we ought to validate people as being made in the image of God, as people who, who matter to God. Uh, we ought to respect them and where they are and on their spiritual journey. And we ought not to try to overwhelm them with evidence, but, but discern from our conversation with them where the real sticking points are. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Sometimes I'll ask a person, uh, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer, mm-hmm. what would you ask? Yeah. Now, if someone were to answer that and say, well, I would say, um, why does a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? Now. I could, as an apologist, say, well, I'm glad you asked that. I've got five reasons why. And I could lay out five reasons why uh, and make the case why a loving God would allow pain and suffering in the world. But I don't do that. What I do is I say to them, wow, of all the possible questions in the universe, why did you choose that one? And then they look and they say, well, because we lost a baby in childbirth five years ago. And I want to know where, where, where was God when that right. happened. Well, now we're getting down to the real issue. Um, um, these questions that people have are often rooted in emotional experiences and in um, um, life experiences. That, that, that's really what they're wrestling with. And it may be that that person does not need five reasons why God allows pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. What that person may need is me to be Jesus to them in that moment and comfort them and say, I'm so sorry that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, God didn't just give us answers. He gave us the answerer. He gave mm-hmm. us Jesus. And sometimes that's what we need to be. So we have to be very discerning on how we use apologetics evidence. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes I'll, I'll sense where somebody's going in a conversation and I'll jump in and start giving them all this evidence when that's not where they were going. I'm, I'm not answering the questions they have. I'm answering the stuff I like to answer because I have great answers for it. So um, you know, we have to really discern what is the question and, and more than that, what's the underlying issue? Um, beneath the question. Okay, I have a question about the movie, and we'll, we'll yeah. wrap this up. Let's say I take a friend to see the movie, mm-hmm. or let's fast forward months yeah. and we have it on you know, Netflix or whatever, yeah. and we're watching it. What should I ask my unbelieving friend afterwards to keep the conversation going? Yeah, I think you know when people go to this film and they bring a friend, I think the most important moment of the evening is not going to be the movie. It's going to be what happens afterwards right. when they go to a coffee shop and they say, let's talk. 
What did you think of the film? Uh, who, what could you re- What character did you relate to the most, and why? That's a great question because they may say, "Oh, that Strobel guy. He was a, yeah, he was a jerk, but he was asking the kind of questions I've got, and and I think he was right to be a skeptic." Or he may say, "You know, I uh, I related more to uh, this other character who kind of had a quiet faith and didn't have it all put together, but kind of had a." Uh, you know, a general belief in God, and that's kind of where I'm at. So I think, you know, what character did you relate to? Um, uh, I'd want to ask, um, you know, if, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, mm. what would you ask him? And that opens the door to a great conversation. Right. Um, another thing I like to ask people is, um, and this is a little off subject, but I'll ask him, what's the greatest thing that ever happened to you? And um, people love answering that question. But then they'll turn it to you and say, well, what about you? And they say, well, you know, getting married was great. Having kids was wonderful. Um, but, you know, when I met Jesus Christ and he changed my life, I, you know, that, that was really an amazing experience. Um, so I think asking those kind of questions, right. um, um, allowing them time and space and, and not feeling like you got to close the deal. And frankly, I'd suggest give them a copy of the book, The Case for Christ, right. and say, hey, I bought you this. This kind of goes the next step. Right. Uh, the movie kind of skimmed the surface of the evidence, but here's, uh, here's something that can answer a lot of your questions and give you the case in depth. That's great. Well, let me just say on behalf of everybody listening, Thank you. And I mean that thank you to Leslie for going to church. Were they still in the theater at the time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We, in the movie, we reproduced the theater. Oh, my and, goodness. And, uh, and, and we got a guy who looks just like Bill Hybels in 1980. Well, and he's baptized as Leslie. And I movie. see that scene in the trailer. Yes. I think. That's yes. a pretty good life pretty good. Bill in those days. Wait to hear the voice. Oh. I'm telling you, it sounds like Bill. It's hilarious. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Well, I'm just so grateful for your willingness to share your story and to not only put it into printed form, but now a movie, which oh, makes nice. it really easy for people to get. But for, I mean, you've been telling this story for mm. how many years yeah. now? You know, 35 years or just, so? I told somebody the other day, I could tell my story three times a day for the rest of my life and it would <laughs> never get old to me because I relive well, it every time emotionally. And, um, and it's the style that God, you know, God gives everybody a different style of sharing yeah. the faith. And that's the style he gave me, so it fits me. Right. So I, I'm going to do it here and this weekend, and I'll do it in churches around the country this coming year, and it never gets older. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you have a moment, we'd love for you to go to iTunes and write a review and share this with your friends on social media and just by word of mouth. It's been great to have you here. We'll see you next month.